Paula Newman-Griss was a three-year-old in Romania when her family began to be torn apart by the Holocaust. Her father, a young Jewish business owner, was arrested and sent away. Eventually, she and the rest of the family were rounded up too. She recounts her harrowing, heartbreaking story to Andrew McRae on this edition of The Scenic Route. Why don't you take me back to the, uh, the 1930s or so? Tell me about your family and uh, where you were living at that time. Well, I was born in 1938. My parents were living in a town called Chernovitz, and it was then part of Bukovina. Formerly, it, it had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so there is a, a lot of the culture of the Austro-Hungarian Empire remained in that region even 19 years after the, the end of World War II when the empire was dissolved. I was the firstborn child in our entire family. So if you can picture the young uh, Princess Kate bringing home her little uh, Charles, and is it Prince Charles? Or George. George, George. Prince George. George. (laughs) I was that baby in the family. And this was like a sliver of time just before the war broke out. So in that, I have no memories of it, but I've been told everybody in the family came to visit our house. My mother and father were ecstatic, of course. And I do have, I have no memories of my father, of his touching me or me touching him, but I have one photograph. Uh, I don't know how it survived, but it's a photograph that was taken when I was maybe nine months old, and my father is standing and has his arms around my mother. My, my, My mother is holding me, and my grandmother, my father's mother, is standing over there. And so he's got his arms around like the whole world. His world is now his mother, his wife, and his little daughter. And it's it's one of those pictures. It's a very iconic picture because this was when what my life was supposed to be, and this was the life that ended for me a short year or two afterwards when he was taken away, and I was left with my mother, and then with the baby. Uh, Well, tell me about these couple of years or so between the time you were born then to the time your father's going to leave. Your family, were they beginning to get an idea that things were going to, a bad situation was about to happen, or what has your family told you about that time? Well, first of all, I have to say that very few people in my family survived, and very few people, so I had no references to go to. The, the couple of years that between 1938 and 1940-41, was really when the crisis hit in our town, but those years were years where people were doing a lot of wishful thinking, just like people do wishful thinking nowadays about a lot of things that seem to threaten our lifestyle, seem to threaten the world, but we want to, we want to think that we're going to manage it. We're going to outlive it. We're going to do something to, to make it go away. I see this very clearly because it was my, part of my life. Uh, but... Um, 
Anyway, so my father was um, a businessman. He had a, a shop uh, on the main street, and uh, I, they still lived the life that they thought they had was going to stretch out for the rest of their life. And then what happened in 1940, the Russians came along and occupied that area. They, they, I, I, it's hard to explain. It's a whole nother, you know, if you made little loops around the, you know, and added text, mm-hmm. this is another, it was a subtext. But the Russians were in the middle of their campaign of Sovietizing the world. So business people were not, were ca- categorized as capitalists. And my father's store was taken away. His, um, his inventory was confiscated, and he was categorized as a capitalist. That was a bad thing to be. Anyway, so the, still, you know, they, it, one can live between the cracks. Nobody was thinking that it was going to last forever or destroy everything. Ultimately, in 1941, my father was arrested and then my memories shift vaguely to my, fa- my mother locking the door, leaving me in the house, running to see my father, taking him food in, uh, in jail, trying to get him out, trying to get... At that point, my mother realized that we were in danger, and she started to go to various embassies or uh, consulates to try to get permission to get out. I have a document that came to us too late to be effective, but Chile, the country of Chile, gave her a visa. But we were already locked behind gates and couldn't get out, so it didn't make a difference. It's just interesting that we could have, might have, escaped everything. Anyway, so we skip over that, and then the Romanians the Romanians decide to take action. And Antonescu, actually, I, in my research, I found speeches of his in which he personally instructed the gendarmerie, which is the police and the, um, and the Romanian uh, armed forces, so to speak, to act as though Romania was going to control the world for the next thousand years. In other words, there would be no accountability for what we do to the Jews now. This is our golden opportunity to get rid of the Jews, to acquire all of their possessions, which was a big part of it was was just robbery, basically, uh, and and to just permanently have done with their Jewish population. I have to insert this. This was not born in 1939 or 30 or 40. There was a long history, a long-standing history of anti-Semitism, virulent anti-Semitism in Bukovina, in Romania, going all the way back to the 19th century and before. Uh, the poets, the intellectuals, the universities, there was always a quota a very high quota, or a low quota, I don't know which way it works, but Jews had a very hard time getting higher education uh, or participating in certain uh, professions. 
So I wanted to just make the point that Antonesco's comments about uh, instructing his um, his people not to feel guilty and to feel secure that Romania was going to rule for the next thousand years, that this was the dream of a lot of people in the country. So it gave everybody a license and the cruelty that they exhibited towards the people whom they captured was so great that it astonished even the Nazis who were part of that territory. First of all, they had no provisions for burying the people whom they shot or killed or murdered. They would throw them down, kill them, torture them, and then leave them. So there was a protest. I found documents that there was a protest by the Einsatzgruppen who were on the other side of a river, and they were concerned that they would catch typhus from all these dead bodies lying around. And they said, this can't go on. You have to have a plan. We don't object to you doing it, but you have to have a plan. Mm -hmm. So I have to just say that this attitude this attitude of, of feeling justified in doing what they were doing continued even after the war. And among the countries that um, took no responsibility for the actions that they committed during the World War II, Romania is very high on, on that list. It was not until 2006, I believe, when uh, they wanted to join the European Union, and one of the conditions of of that was that they had to own up to some of their uh, activities during World War II. And so a commission was set up, I believe it's 2006, but it's it's on record, you can look it up in... um, in the internet. They formed a commission and they issued a document about this thick and um, and in that document they documented that they did indeed and they were sorry and all of that. So presumably now the current administration lives on this platform of having at least owned up to their um, their, their country's deeds. But when you think that three generations grew up thinking that their ancestors, their whoever went before them, was guiltless, that they had nothing to do with this, then it really is somewhat meaningless. On a personal level, some years ago, I think it was in the late 1990s, I participated in a student exchange program. And... As it happened, a young woman was placed in our home because they wanted uh, the young the foreign students to learn English and live in an Eng- uh, English-speaking home. So it turns out that she was from Romania. She was from a, a city called Cluj, which is on the western side, on the Hungarian side of Romania. But she lived in my house for six weeks. And when she came, we chatted, and I never told her my own history. But after a while, when she was staying, and she she was working for Ernst & Young in the daytime, so she would come home at dinnertime, we would sit and chat, 
And I had done a considerable amount of research at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. So I had a folio of documents, actual copies of documents, all written in Romanian that I couldn't understand, but I had it in my files. So one day I said, you know what? I have something I need you to translate for me. Would you mind? Oh, no, I wouldn't mind. Well, this girl got an education. She was astonished because she was a university student, went through the whole system, never knew anything of the facts, which bears out my point that three generations, if if nothing happens, then history buries everything. Mm-hmm. And so why is it important to remember and why is it important to have the historical facts correct? It's not to teach you a lesson or someone else a lesson. That's my personal belief because as I'm watching life develop and history turn around, I see a lot of anti-Semitism uh, waking up, it's like the tiger or the monster has been asleep for a number of years, and it's now waking up in European countries all over the place. It's legitimate to have certain attacks against Jewish synagogues and Jewish individuals. But I think it's important we owe it to the dead. We owe it to the people so that they were not just mowed down, eradicated, My family eradicated nobody. If it weren't for me and my little sister, who, thank God, we both survived, nobody would know that we ever existed, that my father, Simon Neumann, existed, that my grandparents, my grandmother, who stood in that photograph with his arm around her, that she died in Transnistria one week after she got there from starvation and typhus. She was a woman in her 50s. She had no business dying. But the conditions were such that she, there was no chance to survive. So that's, that's my point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your father, when this initially happened, did, were they so bold to say, well, we are taking you away because you are a Jew, or did they make up things to, to, to try to brush over this of why they were taking away? And was it just for a temporary time? How were they appeasing the people, I guess, to make this happen? Or were they even doing that? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there for that, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a conversation with my father. However, I've read enough to know that there were all kinds of myths that were built up. We're relocating you. It's in the middle of the war. We're relocating. We need labor. My mother, in the two years, and this is a point I have to stress, A survivor is not a survivor because they were heroic. No heroism happened during the Holocaust. They survived day one, one day at a time. Every single day was a survival event. And the next day, I could have died because somebody came along and saw a little girl out there in the fields looking for something to eat and kicked her to death or trampled her to death or set his dogs on her or anything could happen. So the fact that each day I went to sleep and I woke up again. My mother was a slave laborer in a rock quarry. She was in her early 30s. Every man there had permission to do anything they wanted to her, and she had to survive that because she had two little girls who were waiting for her. Tell me how that is. 
your your father then leaves what your family was still left in the city then we for a while still left in the city then we were marched to a ghetto and from the ghetto we were taken away um my father was actually taken away by the russians because when 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 the Russia, when the germans decided to break their non-aggression pact with the Russians, which they had made in 1940. And then in 1941, they decided to declare war against Russia and to go towards Stalingrad. So my father was taken away because they had control over him and all the people whom they imprisoned. So they took them and they sent them over to to uh, Siberia or wherever the labor camps there were. Many people survived in those places if they didn't die of cold or starvation or whatever. I've done a great deal of reading on this area too. And uh, a book that, that gives one a picture of what it was like to be in Russia during the, the World War II is a very slim little book uh, written by Solzhenitsyn called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's a remarkable book because it describes the reality of a survivor, whether it was in Transnistria or in Russia. When I read that book, I could imagine my mother being marched off in the winter time, we were we were deported there in the summertime, so it survival was a little bit more possible. In the winter in that region, the temperatures drop way way down below zero, below what we would normally be able to uh, adapt to without heating, without good clothing, without boots, without you know thermal clothing. So. In this book, it describes that, and I pictured my mother going off to be uh, to the the rock quarry in the winter time, and what she had to cover herself with, and what she and her will to live. Her will to live was such, partly partly because she, I think, our soul sometimes has that ability to override starvation, to override deprivation, because the soul says it wants to live. And my mother's soul wanted to live to bring my father back and bring his children to him. We should mention, because we haven't picked it up yet, you remember when you and your mother left, but we haven't talked about your sister much yet as far as because a baby enters the picture here in the middle of the this. The baby was nine months old when we left our place. I don't even know whether that was our original apartment or we were shoved out of that apartment and lived in another place. I know the address because I have a little there's a document in the, actually in the museum that shows number six Torcheska Street, but I don't know whether we actually lived there. Anyway, my sister, my sister survived. What can I tell you? She survived, and she's still, thank God, alive. Mm. My sister, um, I was her primary caregiver. 
during those years. So I must have had an innate skill set because that's what my job was. And uh, we grew up together as two little imps. I'll tell you one more story, and then I think I've told you too many things already. (laughs) But um, in 1944, the, the war ended, actually, in the region where we were sometime in June maybe May of 1944, and that was with the Russian front coming through and the, and the Nazis, the Germans, the Einsatzgruppe, and the, all of their beaten-up soldiers came running through our area in, in retreat, and the Russians were right behind them. So just before that happened, there was a rescue mission that came to our camp to rescue any surviving children that had remained. And uh, mostly the children who had remained were orphans. And so the, the International Red Cross sent these representatives. The way I remember them was sort of rounded figures because everyone around me were stick figures. And I hadn't seen women who had bosoms and hips and were dressed, you know, like you could see their body, not naked, but, you know, they wore a uniform. So my mother had a dilemma because she couldn't, they, they wanted only orphans and they wanted only children who were viable enough. They didn't need to be nursed or diaper changed or whatever. So my mother decided to send me with the ladies. And so she walked me down to that place where the delegation was. And um, they, um, the, the ladies produced little goodies bags because from you know the outside they knew that that's what you do for children you bring them a little goodie bag with a toothbrush in it with some candy or whatever it is and they handed it to me and I was struggling at that point I was now six years old I wasn't four years old and I knew that if I left my sister would be lost I knew that I could not leave and so I said I'm not going and the ladies gave me more candy and said, you'll have a good time. And I said, I'm not going. And so I didn't go. I stayed with my mother and with my sister. And a month or two later, the army came through, and we were among the remnants that stayed alive in that place. The, the camp that you were sent to, that was in Transnistria, is that right? Transnistria, yes, you, you may, did that very well. <laughs> I, I remembered it. So that camp, I mean, any idea how many people were in that, that camp then? It was a vast area, and there were initially about 360,000 Jews that were deported there. It was a series of camps. It wasn't just the territory was very large. It had previously been little hamlets of uh, Jewish farmers and Jewish millers who milled farms. The, I don't know if you know about the Hasidic culture. 
the it, it's a um, particular type of religious observance within Judaism. And it grew, it flourished mostly in that area of, uh, of the Ukraine. The Einsatzgruppen came through there before we were deported there, and they mowed down. They, they were the ones who created long pits and made people stand in front of them and then just shot them in the head from behind and, you know, and did that day in and day out. Uh, going further into that area, you get to Babiyar, which is an infamous place where they mowed down hundreds of thousands of Jews in the Ukraine. But anyway, so um, so the 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 geography of um, of Transnistria was a lot of little hamlets and farms that had been vacated and. Uh, uh, what do you call it, you know, when you go into a house and take apart everything and take from yourself, uh, looted, looted, that's the word I was looking for. The neighboring neighboring, uh, Ukrainians went in. As soon as the Jews were murdered, they went in and they took tables and chairs and coats and, and boots and whatever was there as their own. It was understood that they had permission to do that. So, so that was Transnistria then. So the Jews that were thrown in there just had to forage and find a barn or a pigsty or someplace to, um, to make life possible. We lived, I think, I have very vague little recollections, very, you know, it's almost like there's a fog over it because, as you know, God willing, your daughter will grow up to be a ripe old age and without interruption, without hunger, and without fear, she will be able to remember much more than I can remember because of that. I had to do legwork, a lot of it, to put my story together because otherwise I had no past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to show you a document which... Um, for me, was very significant because it was the first of my research. This is a copy of a microfiche that uh, I got in um, at the museum, at the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. And after the fall of communism, some a team of researchers went from Washington to Romania and copied down reams and reams of documents. And I happened to be in the, at the museum at the time, and I was going through, uh, I was talking to people and, and going through a lot of books and things. And then uh, one of the researchers said, if you want, you can look through some papers we have. And he brings me photo, uh, copies of this microfiche it was a stack like this big, and he put me in a little research room about this big, and I don't know what I'm looking for, and I'm turning pages and turning pages, and in my head I'm saying to myself, this is such futile work. Why am I doing this? And suddenly I come upon this page, and here is my name, Paula Newman. Etka is my mother's name, and Sylvia is my sister's name. Here is their ages. My mother was 30 years old. 
a female, a housewife. She lived in Chernovitz. All of this was written down on a ledger on the day that we were deported from Chernovitz on those trains on June 7, 1942. On this list were the people who lived in my neighborhood. There were people who were 53 years old. There were people who were 8 years old. There were people who were 66 years old, 60 years. But my sister, I think, wins the, the prize of being the youngest child there, nine months old, mm-hmm. loony, loony is months. Mm-hmm. And so this is how they treated it. They, they didn't mind having the statistics to show that they got rid of us, mm-hmm. and they meant it. They hoped that it would be forever, and that's why they killed the children. They killed one and a half million children because children will grow up and will have children, and then they might regenerate the Jewish people. So as Lucy Davidowitz, who was a very thorough, very renowned historian, she's no longer in life and other historians have superseded her, but she called this not a Nazi World War II. She said it was a war against the Jews. And that's that's very true from her perspective. She analyzed the war, and she concluded that if it weren't for the fervor with which the Nazis pursued the killing of Jews, they might have won the war, the big war against Russia, and then gone on to the Middle East and and become the ruler of the world. But they had a dual goal. The the Russians liberated your your camp, and and all three of you... All three of us survived. The Russians did not come like the Allies when they stumbled upon the concentration camps. The war was essentially over. And so they went about trying to rehabilitate, to save, to set up soup kitchens, to, to, you know, they were astonished and shocked to find the remnants, and they did what they could. The Russians were winning a war, their war, and it was still under Stalinist uh, leadership. So they came through the camps without really looking backwards to see who, whom they passed by, who was left there, what their needs were. People died after they came through also. But we, the small group of people who were still viable. My mother, with her soul full of hope and that will to live, she said, we're going to go back to Transnistria, I mean to Chernovitz, and see who survived. And maybe Tatika, my father, uh, my native language was German, because in, uh, in the region where I was born, Bukovina, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had left a very strong mark. And part of that mark was that it was um, it, it was uh, German. It was an Austrian culture. And so anyway, my mother felt that she wanted to go back and see whether my father would come back, whom we called Tatika. And we, we hitchhiked. We walked. We spent many nights in fields sleeping out in the open. Occasionally a farmer would let us sleep in the barn, 
but we made it somehow. We got a wagon ride here and there, and we made it back to Chernovitz, and we remained there for a few months, and then my mother got wind of the fact that the Russians were about to reoccupy that area, and the Iron Curtain would come down, and she wasn't going to try to experience that chapter again. So we got on trains, and we traveled, and traveled through various countries in in Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia. We went through, um, I remember sleeping on the floor in uh, Austria somewhere in a shelter. And we uh, eventually came to the American zone of occupation, which is where the Allies had set up displaced persons camps in order to try to deal with all the displaced people who had been displaced during World War II. There were many nationalities of people who had been displaced all over the place. But all those nationalities had a place to go. If you were Dutch, you went back to Holland. If you were German, you went back to Germany. If you were uh, Polish, you went back to Poland. The Jews had nowhere to go back to because they had been kicked out of all the countries where they had set down roots. And most Jews, some did go back. Some tried to go back and experienced, again, hostile anti-Semitism. But the majority of Jews said, we want to start over. If we survived, we want to start over, but we want to start over somewhere else. And so they remained in the DP camps until they got permission documents that allowed them to immigrate. So it was that story that we're living in right now in America about illegal immigration. We didn't illegally immigrate. No, Nobody had the opportunity because we were over there in Germany and the, uh, you know, with allies all around. But the waiting to get an opportunity to start life over lasted for us almost seven years. Mm. We did not come to America until June. The, we, came, we were deported in June 7th, 1942. We came to America on June 2nd, 1951. You can do the math. Mm. The three of you came together. The three of us came together on the USS General Stewart. And uh, a reconditioned ar- army um, troop carrier, uh, not a not not an ocean liner. <laughs> Did you initially come to Atlanta, or was Atlanta no. much later then? No, we came to uh, New York City because there were some agencies that guaranteed their support for us. Because one of the difficulties in uh, for us to get papers was that my mother, a widow with two little children, was not high on anybody's list of wanted people. You know, they wanted ex-Nazi scientists much more than they wanted my mother and her two little children. And so, and she had no particular skill sets. You know, she she was married and she was supposed to be a housewife and raise good children. So, um... So we had to wait a long time, 
and uh, ultimately uh, a few agencies signed for us and uh, to guarantee that we would not become wardens of the state or whatever they called mm -hmm. it then. This has all been fascinating, of course, to me. Before I wind up, because there's so much that you could share, are there any pieces that we've left out that you would make, want to make sure that we get in? Or, I always like to ask that because sometimes there's things that you may be thinking that, boy, I really want to get that in and I don't want to miss the chance. Well, I want to get in the fact that what did I, as a, as a growing up adult, what became my values in, in raising my children? And what were those values as, as a result of what I had seen as a child? And I uh, have to say unequivocally that... Uh, Judaism, reestablishing Judaism, became very important to me. Raising my children with Jewish values, with knowledgeable knowledge of the of the Jewish Bible, of the prophetic vision that Judaism has provided for the world. This was particularly important to me because I saw it as a way to deny them the victory. The ultimate victory was to eradicate Judaism. And so, thank God, I have raised five wonderful children who carry with the, in them that feeling and that pride of who they are and trying to live a, um, a life of good deeds, of mercy, of understanding, so that was, that was very important to me. And the second thing that was very important to me that was handed down to me to my, through my mother was the importance of the state of Israel and the importance of that as um, Israel be, being, again, a sovereign state and a, and a place that uh, gives pride and energy to Jews living anywhere in the world because they are no longer these orphans that can be kicked out that someone can say, pretend that you will rule the world for a thousand years and no one will hold you accountable. At least, at least Israel, in every way possible, does hold people accountable when they attack Jewish life. Thank you to the Bremen Jewish Heritage and Holocaust Museum in Atlanta for their help in setting up our interview. We'll have information and links to help you connect with the museum where you can learn more at our website, AmericanCountryside.com.